Psalm 18 of the Treasury of David. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Treasury of David, Volume 1, by Charles Spurgeon. Psalm 18, Part 1. Title. To the Chief Musician. A Psalm of David, the Servant of the Lord, who spake unto the Lord the words of this song, in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. We have another form of this psalm, with significant variations, Second Samuel 22, and this suggests the idea that it was sung by David at different times when he reviewed his own remarkable history and observed the gracious hand of God in it all. Like Addison's hymn beginning, When all thy mercies, O my God, this psalm is the song of a grateful heart, overwhelmed with a retrospect of the manifold and marvelous mercies of God. We will call it the Grateful Retrospect. The title deserves attention. David, although at this time a king, calls himself the Servant of Jehovah, but makes no mention of his royalty. Hence we gather that he counted it a higher honor to be the Lord's servant than to be Judah's king. Right wisely did he judge. Being possessed of poetic genius, he served the Lord by composing this psalm for the use of the Lord's house, and it is no mean work to conduct or to improve that delightful part of divine worship, the singing of the Lord's praises. Would that more musicians and poetical ability were consecrated, and that our chief musicians were fit to be trusted with devout and spiritual psalmody. It should be observed that the words of this song were not composed with the view of gratifying the taste of men, but were spoken unto Jehovah. It were well if we had a more single eye to the honor of the Lord in our singing, and in all other hallowed exercises. That praise is little worth which is not directed solely and heartily to the Lord. David might well be thus direct in his gratitude, for he owed all to his God, and in the day of his deliverance he had none to thank but the Lord whose right hand had preserved him. We, too, should feel that to God and God alone we owe the greatest debt of honor and thanksgiving. If it be remembered that the second and forty-ninth verses are both quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews 2.13, Romans 15.9, as the words of the Lord Jesus, it will be clear that a greater than David is here. Reader, you will not need our aid in this respect. If you know Jesus, you will readily find him in his sorrows, deliverance, and triumphs, all through this wonderful psalm. Division. The first three verses are the proem, or preface, in which the resolve to bless God is declared. Delivering mercy is most poetically extolled from verse 4 to verse 19, and then the happy songster, from verse 20 to 28, protests that God had acted righteously in thus favoring him. Filled with grateful joy, he again pictures his deliverance and anticipates future victories from verse 29 to 45, and in closing speaks with evident prophetic foresight of the glorious triumphs of the Messiah, David's seed, and the Lord's anointed. Exposition, verses 1 to 3. I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, and my fortress, 
and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, and my high tower. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Verse 1. I will love thee, O Lord. With strong, hearty affection will I cling to thee, as a child to its parent, or a spouse to her husband. The word is intensely forcible. The love is of the deepest kind. I will love heartily, with my inmost bowels. Here is a fixed resolution to abide in the nearest and most intimate union with the Most High. Our triune God deserves the warmest love of all our hearts. Father, Son, and Spirit have each a claim upon our love. The solemn purpose never to cease loving naturally springs from present fervor of affection. It is wrong to make rash resolutions, but this, when made in the strength of God, is most wise and fitting. My strength. Our God is the strength of our life. Our graces, our works, our hopes, our conflicts, our victories. This verse is not found in First Samuel 22, and is a most precious addition, placed above all and after all to form the pinnacle of the temple, the apex of the pyramid. Love is still the crowning grace. Verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. Dwelling among the crags and mountain fastnesses of Judah, David had escaped the malice of Saul, and here he compares his God to such a place of concealment and security. Believers are often hidden in their God from the strife of tongues and the fury of the storm of trouble. The clefts of the rock of ages are safe abodes. My deliverer, interposing in my hour of peril. When almost captured, the Lord's people are rescued from the hand of the mighty by him who is mightier still. This title of Deliverer has many sermons in it and is well worthy of the study of all experienced saints. My God, this is all good things in one. There is a boundless wealth in this expression. It means my perpetual, unchanging, infinite, eternal good. He who can truly say, My God, may well add, My heaven, my all. My strength. This word is really my rock, in the sense of strength and immobility. My sure, unchanging, eternal confidence and support. Thus the word rock occurs twice, but it is no tautology, for the first time it is a rock for concealment, but here a rock for firmness and immutability. In whom I will trust. Faith must be exercised, or the preciousness of God is not truly known, and God must be the object of faith, or faith is mere presumption. My buckler, warding off the blows of my enemy, shielding me from arrow or sword. The Lord furnishes his warriors with weapons, both offensive and defensive. Our armory is completely stored so that none need go to battle unarmed. The horn of my salvation, enabling me to push down my foes and to triumph over them with holy exultation. My high tower, 
a citadel high planted on a rocky eminence beyond the reach of my enemies, from the heights of which I look down upon their fury without alarm, and survey a wide landscape of mercy reaching even unto the goodly land beyond Jordan. Here are many words, but none too many. We might profitably examine each one of them had we leisure, but summing up the whole, we may conclude with Calvin that David here equips the faithful from head to foot. Verse 3. In this verse, the happy poet resolves to invoke the Lord in joyful song, believing that in all future conflicts his God would deal as well with him as in the past. It is well to pray to God as one who deserves to be praised, for then we plead in a happy and confident manner. If I feel that I can and do bless the Lord for all his past goodness, I am bold to ask great things of him. That word, so, has much in it. To be saved singing is to be saved indeed. Many are saved mourning and doubting, but David had such faith that he could fight singing and win the battle with a song still upon his lips. How happy a thing to receive fresh mercy with a heart already sensible of mercy enjoyed, and to anticipate new trials with a confidence based upon past experiences of divine love. No fearing or doubting with Christ on our side, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. Verses 4 to 19 The sorrows of death compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled, the foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken, because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils, and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and came down, and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub, and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters, and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows, and scattered them, and he shot out lightnings, and discomfited them, then the channels of waters were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of thy nostrils. He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he delivered me from my strong enemy, and from them which hated me, for they were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me, because he delighted in me. In most poetical language, the psalmist now describes his experience of Jehovah's delivering power. 
Posy has in all her treasures no gem more lustrous than the sonnet of the following verses. The sorrow, the cry, the descent of the divine one, and the rescue of the afflicted, are here set to a music worthy of the golden harps. The Messiah, our Savior, is evidently, over and beyond David or any other believer, the main and chief subject of this song, and while studying it we have grown more and more sure that every line here has its deepest and profoundest fulfillment in him. But as we are desirous not to extend our comment beyond moderate bounds, we must leave it with the devout reader to make the very easy application of the passage to our once distressed but now triumphant Lord. Verse 4. The sorrows of death compassed me. Death, like a cruel conqueror, seemed to twist round about him the cords of pain. He was environed and hemmed in with threatening deaths of the most appalling sort. He was like a mariner broken by the storm, and driven upon the rocks by dreadful breakers, white as the teeth of death. A sad plight for the man after God's own heart, but thus it is that Jehovah dealeth with his sons. The floods of ungodly men made me afraid. Torrents of ungodliness threatened to swamp all religion, and to hurry away the godly man's hope as a thing to be scorned and despised. So far was this threat fulfilled, that even the hero who slew Goliath began to be afraid. The most seaworthy bark is sometimes hard put to it when the storm fiend is abroad. The most courageous man, who as a rule hopes for the best, may sometimes fear the worst. Beloved reader, he who pens these lines has known better than most men what this verse means, and feels inclined to weep, and yet to sing, while he writes upon a text so descriptive of his own experience. On the night of the lamentable accident at Surrey Music Hall, the floods of Belial were let loose, and the subsequent remarks of a large portion of the press were exceedingly malicious and wicked. Our soul was afraid as we stood encompassed with the sorrows of death and the blasphemies of the cruel. But, oh, what mercy was there in it all! And what honey goodness was extracted by our Lord out of this lion of affliction! Surely God hath heard me. Art thou in an ill plight? Dear friend, learn thou from our experience to trust in the Lord Jehovah, who forsaketh not his chosen. Verse 5. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. From all sides the hell-hounds barked furiously. A cordon of devils hemmed in the hunted man of God. Every way of escape was closed up. Satan knows how to blockade our coasts with the iron warships of sorrow, but, blessed be God, the port of all prayer is still open, and grace can run the blockade bearing messages from earth to heaven, and blessings in return from heaven to earth. The snares of death prevented me. The old enemy hunts for his prey, not only with the dogs of the infernal kennel, but also with the snares of deadly craft. The nets were drawn closer and closer, until the contracted circle completely prevented the escape of the captive. About me cords of hell were wound, and snares of death my footsteps bound. Thus hopeless was the case of this good man, as hopeless as a case could be, so utterly desperate that none but an almighty arm could be of any service. According to the four metaphors which he employs, he was bound like a malefactor for execution, overwhelmed like a shipwrecked mariner, 
surrounded and standing at bay like a hunted stag, and captured in a net like a trembling bird. What more of terror and distress could meet upon one poor defenseless head? Verse 6. In my distress I called upon the Lord, and cried unto my God. Prayer is that postern gate which is left open, even when the city is straitly besieged by the enemy. It is that way upward from the pit of despair to which the spiritual miner flies at once when the floods from beneath break forth upon him. Observe that he calls, and then cries. Prayer grows in vehemence as it proceeds. Note also that he first invokes his God under the name of Jehovah, and then advances to a more familiar name, My God. Thus faith increases by exercise, and he whom we at first viewed as Lord is soon seen to be our God in covenant. It is never an ill time to pray. No distress should prevent us from using the divine remedy of supplication. Above the noise of the raging billows of death, or the barking dogs of hell, the feeblest cry of a true believer will be heard in heaven. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even into his ears. Far up within the bejeweled walls, and through the gates of pearl, the cry of the suffering suppliant was heard. Music of angels and harmony of seraphs availed not to drown, or even to impair the voice of that humble call. The king heard it in his palace of light insufferable, and lent a willing ear to the cry of his own beloved child. O honored prayer, to be able thus through Jesus' blood to penetrate the very ears and heart of deity. The voice and the cry are themselves heard directly by the Lord, and not made to pass through the medium of saints and intercessors. My cry came before him. The operation of prayer with God is immediate and personal. We may cry with confident and familiar importunity, while our Father himself listens. Verse 7. There was no great space between the cry and its answer. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but is swift to rescue his afflicted. David has in his mind's eye the glorious manifestation of God in Egypt, at Sinai, and on different occasions to Joshua and the judges, and he considers that his own case exhibits the same glory of power and goodness, and that, therefore, he may accommodate the descriptions of former displays of the divine majesty into his hymn of praise. Then the earth shook and trembled. Observe how the most solid and immovable things feel the force of supplication. Prayer has shaken houses, opened prison doors, and made stout hearts to quail. Prayer rings the alarm bell, and the master of the house arises to the rescue, shaking all things beneath his tread. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because of his wrath. He who fixed the world's pillars can make them rock in their sockets, and can upheave the cornerstones of creation. The huge roots of the towering mountains are torn up, when the Lord bestirs himself in anger to smite the enemies of his people. How shall puny man be able to face it out with God when the very mountains quake with fear? Let not the boaster dream that his present false confidence will support him in the dread day of wrath. Verse 8. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils. A violent oriental method of expressing fierce wrath. 
Since the breath from the nostrils is heated by strong emotion, the figure portrays the Almighty Deliverer as pouring forth smoke in the heat of his wrath and the impetuousness of his zeal. Nothing makes God so angry as an injury done to his children. He that toucheth you toucheth the apple of mine eye. God is not subject to the passions which govern his creatures, but acting as he does with all the energy and speed of one who is angry, he is here aptly set forth in poetic imagery suitable to human understandings. The opening of his lips is sufficient to destroy his enemies. And fire out of his mouth devoured. This fire was no temporary one, but steady and lasting. Coals were kindled by it. The whole passage is intended to depict God's descent to the help of his child, attended by earthquake and tempest. At the majesty of his appearing, the earth rocks, the clouds gather like smoke, and the lightning as flaming fire devours, setting the world on a blaze. What grandeur of description is here? Bishop Mont very admirably rhymes this verse thus. Smoke from his heated nostrils came, and from his mouth devouring flame. Hot burning coals announced his ire, and flashes of careening fire. Verse 9. Amid the terror of the storm, Jehovah, the avenger, descended, bending beneath his foot the arch of heaven. He bowed the heavens also, and came down. He came in haste, and spurned everything which impeded his rapidity. The thickest gloom concealed his splendor, and darkness was under his feet. He fought within the dense vapors, as a warrior in clouds of smoke and dust, and found out the hearts of his enemies with the sharp falchion of his vengeance. Darkness is no impediment to God. Its densest gloom he makes his tent and secret pavilion. See how prayer moves earth and heaven, and raises storms to overthrow in a moment the foes of God's Israel. Things were bad for David before he prayed, but they were much worse for his foes so soon as the petition had gone up to heaven. A trustful heart, by enlisting the divine aid, turns the tables on its enemies. If I must have an enemy, let him not be a man of prayer, or he will soon get the better of me by calling in his God into the quarrel. Verse 10. There is inimitable grandeur in this verse. Under the Mosaic system, the cherubim are frequently represented as the chariot of God. Hence Milton, in Paradise Lost, writes of the Great Father, He on the wings of the cherubim, uplifted in paternal glory rode far into chaos. Without speculating upon the mysterious and much disputed subject of the cherubim, it may be enough to remark that angels are doubtless our guards and ministering friends, and all their powers are enlisted to expedite the rescue of the afflicted. He rode upon a cherub, and did fly. Nature also yields all her agents to be our helpers, and even the powers of the air are subservient. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. The Lord comes flying when mercy is his errand, but he lingers long when sinners are being wooed to repent. The flight here pictured is as majestic as it is swift. Flying all abroad is Sternhold's word, and he is not far from correct. As the eagle soars in easy grandeur, with wings outspread, without violent flapping and exertion, so comes the Lord with majesty of omnipotence to aid his own. Verse 11. 
The storm thickened, and the clouds pouring forth torrents of rain combined to form the secret chamber of the invisible but wonder-working God. Pavilioned in impervious shade, Faith saw him, but no other eye could glaze through the thick clouds of the sky. Blessed is the darkness which encurtains my God. If I may not see him, it is sweet to know that he is working in secret for my eternal good. Even fools can believe that God is abroad in the sunshine and the calm, but faith is wise and discerns him in the terrible darkness and threatening storm. Verse 12. Suddenly the terrible artillery of heaven was discharged. The brightness of lightning lit up the clouds as with a glory proceeding from him who was concealed within the cloudy pavilion, and volleys of hailstones and coals of fire were hurled forth upon the enemy. The lightnings seemed to cleave the clouds and kindle them into a blaze, and then hailstones and flakes of fire with flashes of terrific grandeur terrified the sons of men. Verse 13. Over all this splendor of tempest pealed the dread thunder. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice. Fit accompaniment for the flames of vengeance. How will men bear to hear it at the last when addressed to them in proclamation of their doom? For even now their hearts are in their mouths, if they do but hear it muttering from afar. In all this terror David found a theme for song, and thus every believer finds even in the terrors of God a subject for holy praise. Hailstones and coals of fire are twice mentioned to show how certainly they are in the divine hand, and are the weapons of heaven's vengeance. Horn remarks that every thunderstorm should remind us of that exhibition of power and vengeance which is hereafter to accompany the general resurrection. May it not also assure us of the real power of him who is our father and our friend, and tend to assure us of our safety while he fights our battles for us. The prince of the power of the air is soon dislodged when the cherubic chariot is driven through his dominions. Therefore let not the legions of hell cause us dismay. He who is with us is greater than all they that be against us. Verse 14. The lightnings were darted forth as forked arrows upon the hosts of the foe, and speedily scattered them. Boastful sinners prove to be great cowards when Jehovah enters the lists with them. They despise his words, and are very tongue-valiant, but when it comes to blows they fly apace. The glittering flames and fierce bolts of fire discomfited them. God is never at a loss for weapons. Woe be unto him that contendeth with his Maker. God's arrows never miss their aim. They are feathered with lightning and barbed with everlasting death. Fly, O sinner, to the rock of refuge before these arrows stick fast in thy soul. Verse 15. So tremendous was the shock of God's assault in arms that the order of nature was changed, and the bottoms of rivers and seas were laid bare. The channels of waters were seen, and the deep cavernous bowels of the earth were upheaved till the foundations of the world were discovered. What will not Jehovah's rebuke do, if the blast of the breath of thy nostrils, O Lord, be so terrible, what must thine arm be? Vain are the attempts of men to conceal anything from him whose word unbars the deep and lifts the doors of earth from their hinges. Vain are all hopes of resistance, for a whisper of his voice makes the whole earth quail in abject terror. Verse 16. 
Now comes the rescue. The author is divine. He sent, the work is heavenly, from above. The deliverance is marvelous. He drew me out of many waters. Here David was like another Moses, drawn from the water, and thus are all believers like their Lord, whose baptism in many waters of agony and in his own blood has redeemed us from the wrath to come. Torrents of evil shall not drown the man whose God sitteth upon the floods to restrain their fury. Verse 17. When we have been rescued, we must take care to ascribe all the glory to God by confessing our own weakness and remembering the power of the conquered enemy. God's power derives honor from all the incidents of the conflict. Our great spiritual adversary is a strong enemy, indeed, much too strong for poor, weak creatures like ourselves. But we have been delivered hitherto, and shall be even to the end. Our weakness is a reason for divine help. Mark the force of the for in the text. Verse 18. It was an ill day, a day of calamity, of which evil foes took cruel advantage. While they used crafty means utterly to ruin him, yet David could say, But the Lord is my stay. What a blessed but which cuts the Gordian knot and slays the hundred-headed hydra. There is no fear of deliverance when our stay is in Jehovah. Verse 19. He brought me forth also into a large place. After pining a while in the prison house, Joseph reached the palace, and from the cave of Adullam David mounted to the throne. Sweet is pleasure after pain. Enlargement is the more delightful after a season of pinching poverty and sorrowful confinement. Besieged souls delight in the broad fields of promise when God drives off the enemy and sets open the gates of the environed city. The Lord does not leave his work half done, for having routed the foe, he leads out the captive into liberty. Large indeed is the possession and place of the believer in Jesus. There need be no limit of his peace, for there is no bound to his privilege. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Free grace lies at the foundation. Rest assured, if we go deep enough, sovereign grace is the truth which lies at the bottom of every well of mercy. Deep-sea fisheries in the ocean of divine bounty always bring the pearls of electing, discriminating love to light. Why Jehovah should delight in us is an answerless question, and a mystery which angels cannot solve. But that he does delight in his beloved is certain, and is the fruitful root of favors as numerous as they are precious. Believer, sit down and inwardly digest the instructive sentence now before us, and learn to view the uncaused love of God as the cause of all the loving kindness of which we are partakers. End of part one of Psalm eighteen.